This is episode 122 of the Rising Man podcast with Chief Philip Scott. Hokahe. Good rising family. Blessings out to all you risers out there representing the Rising Man movement. My name is Jetty Azuma. And I'm sending my prayers and thoughts to all of you guys, wherever you are in the world, whoever you are in the world. We're living in some crazy, uncertain times. And in my opinion, it's a beautiful thing. The beautiful thing is that we have each other. And right now, in this moment, we can create whatever we want together in this time. As I've said many times over on this podcast and everywhere else, the Rising Man mission is to initiate an entire generation of men into purpose and powerful leadership so that our children and the coming generations have strong masculine leadership to guide them into an uncertain future. That's what we're about here. And after two years of doing the Rising Man podcast and clarifying the Rising Man message, it's more clear to me than it ever has been that what we need most as men is brotherhood and spaces where we can realize that we're not alone in our challenges, our fears and obstacles. We're not unique, especially right now especially when we're isolated and quarantined to our homes with social distancing practices and separation protocols. We can't let this deter us from connecting and creating brotherhood. We can't let this deter us from our mission. So if you've been isolated, if you've been lone wolfing it during this time and you're looking to clarify your purpose, then the Rising Man Tribe's got something for you. Head over to risingman.org. You can check out our virtual men's circles, our four-day compass initiations, our video content, everything that will help you become a bigger part of the Rising Man movement and opportunities to share and deepen into the Rising Man message. So head over to risingman.org and check that out today. Get yourself involved. Okay, today's guest is a return guest. Chief Philip Scott has walked the native path for over 30 years, learning from and sanctioned by traditional medicine holy people tribal spiritual leaders, shamans, and elders from several indigenous cultures. Annually sundancing in the Lakota tradition for over two decades, he is a ceremonial leader entrusted to share indigenous wisdom and traditional healing practices with the contemporary world. Interviewed both nationally and internationally on radio, television, and for newspapers, his life and experience have been featured in journals and books. In addition to directing and teaching the programs at the Institute in Northern California, which he founded in 1994, he maintains a private healing practice, performs ceremonies, lectures, conducts intensives, and leads pilgrimages worldwide. Chief Philip Scott was a guest on the podcast, uh, I want to say a few months ago now. I don't remember how long ago it was, but really powerful episode, really powerful dialogue, and so much so that we, we decided to jump back in, especially with what's going on in the world in this moment with coronavirus and quarantine and all of the social and cultural changes that are happening at a rapid rate. In this episode, we discussed interpreting and understanding the lessons of global pandemic and the opportunity to remember our relationship to the natural world, developing and deepening your sacred practice, what a sacred practice is, how to begin on the path if you're just getting started. We spoke about how traditional rites of passage were designed to prepare men for the rigors and discomforts of a challenging life, and lastly, how leadership is revealed in the hardest and darkest of times. Without further ado, once again, Chief Philip Scott. All right, Rising Man community, welcoming back one of my favorite men in the world and an esteemed guest. I know last time we had Chief Philip Scott here on the show, it was a very well-received episode. A lot of you guys were hungry for more of his wisdom. So Chief, thank you for taking time to be here with us today on, on a very special and important day to you as well, as I understand. Yes, pleasure to be back, Jetty. Indeed, yeah. I want to honor and remember my beloved wife in the spirit world, Cecilia. It is her birthday today. Uh, she passed away in 1999 in a vehicular accident while visiting our adopted Lakota mother on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Mm, mm, wow. 21 years. She would be, yeah, she would be uh, 67 today. Oh, beautiful. Thank you for presencing that and sending prayers and blessings to her on that on the other side over there, looking out, looking down on us while we have this conversation and these in these very interesting times. I'm sure uh, you know what what sparked the idea for us to jump in again in this time is everything that's happening with this virus, this pandemic, uh, this new language that 
all of us are adopting with social distancing and the the war on viruses, it, it stirred up a lot. And I, I thought we would just start by checking in with what what has been your prevailing perspective on what this all is right now? Although it may be a novel virus, this time has been prophesized. So the indigenous visionaries, dreamers, and seers foresaw what was happening. They saw the arrival of these this global crisis that we're encountering mm. uh, well before Al Gore was generous enough to share the science with the mainstream and Greta Thunberg was willing to sacrifice her education to be a young voice in articulating her con- concern about her future mm. and the welfare of this planet. Indigenous peoples have spoken of the earth changes to come, mm. including the pandemic. You know, if we look at indigenous people throughout the world, there is a respect for our elders. And those elders are not just in human form, as they walk and live upon this earth longer than ourselves, but rather the elementals, earth, air, fire, water. These are our most ancient elders who are living sentient beings. Then come the viruses and the bacteria. They are billions of years old. Then the plant nations and our animal relations. All of these are our elders because we look at the origin stories within all over the world. Mm. Human beings are the last to be created, not the first. So we are the grandchildren. We have the most to learn. And we seek counsel and guidance from our elders, including the viruses in this case. Mm. Yeah. So, so what, one of the things that I'm hearing in that is that perhaps a different perspective and way of looking at this virus as, as a teacher, as in that elder position of what is, or even a medicine, you know, if, if we really want to flip the tortilla as one of my, one of my dear friends likes to say, <laughs> how is the virus a medicine? Uh, is, is there anything that you have to say about that? I mean, I think it speaks to our fear that everything must be a war. Uh, no, we're now engaging in a war with this virus, right? This isn't a war. This is our wake-up call. Mm. I'm hearing also the rhetoric of this is akin to a terrorist attack. This isn't terrorism. This is our teaching. Mm. And the earth has been crying and requesting and pleading that we, as one of her children upon this earth, to listen to her. Mm. She is suffering. And this virus is a part of her biome. So this is a way that she, as a living organism, is self-regulating and attempting to balance herself. And we see that evidence by, as a result of our lack of human activity, the air is becoming purified. The waters are becoming clean. The animals are returning to landscapes. Hmm. And ultimately, this teaching is to allow us to remember what our collective original instructions on this planet, which is to be a steward, to be a loving protector of this earth and all of our relations upon her. Mm. And we have strayed from this teaching and from our responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I believe that the emergence of this virus is an opportunity for us to remember and reevaluate our relationship to her and the natural world. Because even this rhetoric of violence and war and aggression continues to place the earth and all of our relations upon her as adversarial to us. So we continue to separate ourselves from the web of creation. Hmm. I really appreciate that perspective. It evokes a sense of like a, like a teaching that one would receive from an elder. If we look at ourselves as those grandchildren, the youngest beings, I think of how a grandfather would would impose wisdom upon a younger person. So in, it is coming from the earth that we usually consider to be a woman, but it feels like a sort of a masculine teaching. Because I, I hold masculine teachings to have to have consequences and a, and a like a fatherly presence to it. So it's it's interesting to look at it through that lens that we are getting what we need. And a lot of times when we get what we need, it's not comfortable. <laughs> it's, it's not what our, what our ego desires, but there's, there's a part of it that's necessary. Well, this is an initiation, mm. which is never comfortable. Right? This, is a rite of, this is a collective rite of passage. And just as when 
an individual goes out on a hamblecha, right, the Lakota for crying for a dream, fasting without food, water, and sleep for four days and four nights, experiencing privation, right? What happens is that individuals are opened up to the numinous, to, to the sacred, to the visitation from the ancestors, from, from the source, from this. And so we, many of us are being forced to sequester, to go without many of the conveniences that we are accustomed to. So in a sense, it's an involuntary quest. Mm. And with that comes the gift of being able to go within and to receive guidance. So many people are calling me saying that their dreams have been pronounced and enhanced in this time as the there's a limitation of being able to go out into the world, right? To to travel, be more mobile. Mm. So it's a hunkering down. It's kind of like the winter. You know, we go within a little bit and we share stories, right? So the technology that we have right now that has been exploding, mm. right? As people are endeavoring to share their messages or perhaps even desperately attempting to continue to work and create a livelihood. Mm. So nevertheless, the, the movement is still to go within because of the restrictions that are being imposed, which are, are sound and wise. Uh, I'm not too thrilled about the, the word social distancing because I believe that it can imply alienation and isolation and separation from each other. Whereas, you know, even though we may not be able to physically be close, so it's more physical distancing, there is also therefore an opportunity for deeper intimacy, meaning not through physical contact, but through psychological, emotional, and spiritual avenues of yeah. And I'd like to respond to that because that's something that I've noticed. What I've, I've had a number of conversations with different folks and regardless of where someone is, the prevailing things seem to be that folks are taking a deeper look at themselves as an individual, how they've led their lives. Uh, and I'm speaking, I'm including myself in this too, how I've lived my life, how I've organized and arranged my life. What are the beliefs and ideas that are coming up in this time where I, a lot of my mobility and some of my abilities have been uh, taken off the table from me? I'm hearing a lot of people in those same, same and similar questions, to, depending on where they're at in their life. I'm also seeing a lot of folks that are that their only option, aside from sitting at home and cruising on the internet or watching Netflix, is to get out and connect with nature. And because we can't go and do something in, in large groups, it's more of a an intimate connection with nature, maybe with your your spouse or a child or, or even just solo. And I'm hearing from people just the great wisdom that they're getting from that. So it reminds me of when I went out and fasted and, and when I've witnessed and supported other people fasting, the one of the things for folks who don't do that very often is just how much there is to learn just by being still in our in our mm -hmm. wild environment. And so I'm, I'm glad that you brought in that context of a rite of passage because I think a lot of people, we're all in it and most of us don't know that we're in it and don't have a framework for what a rite of passage is. Mm-hmm. So, so what do you think for, for folks out there who, who aren't familiar with or accustomed to that? How, does, how can one draw the most wisdom or get the most out of this time of quarantine? The prophecies state, that, with which I'm familiar, those that have a connection to the earth and to the sacred will fare much better. And so my encouragement to your listeners is not to squander this time, rather to allow this to be a deep dive into one's sacred practices, whatever they may be. Meditation, prayer, communion in nature with appropriate physical distancing if necessary, but even taking walks by oneself is illuminating and nurturing and healing. Mm. Essentially, that's the opportunity for us. It's an invitation, if you will, mm. to exercise and nurture and nourish our spirits, mm. not to mention our bodies, minds, and hearts, because that's essentially how we will also survive and receive the teachings from this virus, because this virus isn't going anywhere. We're not going to be eliminating it from the face of the planet. Right. It's more that we will learn, as we have with previous arrivals and transmissions of viruses in the form of HIV and 
smallpox and herpes. Have these been eradicated from the planet? No. But we have learned how to live in balance with them. And that's essentially the key is to help each of us achieve balance, right? All crises, all conflicts, all challenges help to shape and define who we are. It brings out the truth of who we actually are. Mm. There are individuals who are very comfortable and at peace with the seeming isolation, right? The the uh, insularity of what's transpiring currently. And there are others who are literally pulling their hair out. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it also, these, these kind of moments reveal genuine leaders from those who are pretenders mm. or who have selfish agendas, right? Or who are insensitive and unaware of what is actually occurring and how to safeguard the people. Mm. Yeah, I, I want to talk a little bit more about that because I've I've noticed that as well. Uh, that's something I've always believed is that the moments of great challenge are the ones that allow us to show up as our greatest and highest selves. That's when we really need it, right? That's when you need all of those tools, all that experience, all this, the hours and, and years of time invested in something to show up is for times like these. And I'm I'm watching my brothers and my sisters around me going through their process in different ways. I'm hearing, I'm seeing some people who are what I believe listening f more deeply to that genuine voice, that authentic voice of truth within them that I believe is connected to the voice of nature that is telling them in some ways to slow down, take a pause, breathe it in, look around a little bit. And other people are hearing... Mm -hmm. Let's get busy. Let's get to work. It's time. It's time to show up. And I've, I've really been just encouraging other people to, to listen to what that voice is saying and to, to begin developing a relationship with that voice of truth. Because that's, that's what I experienced when I went out and fasted was I'd stripped away so many of the other distractions and comforts and conveniences in order to really sit with that voice of truth. It's always there, but usually is drowned out by the static by the, by the distractions and, and everything else that's happening around me. So mm -hmm. back to this idea of a rite of passage, it's like that opportunity to tune in. So what do you think there is for us to do? And you, when we talk about leaders, when you say leaders, this is the moment for leaders to really show up and step forward. How does a leader show up in times of great challenge like this? This is the time through our spiritual practices that we're waiting for. This is the ultimate engagement, if you will. What is the purpose of our spiritual practice? Well. It's actually to help us prepare for a good death mm. you know, so that when it's time for us to drop our body and return back home, because this is classroom plan here, you know, to provide us with the tools to be able to connect with the spirits that walk with us and help us have a good journey. Mm. Wow. Similarly, our spiritual practice is to help us have a good life, a rich life a fulfilling one, you know, to remember our original instructions. And the practice that we have does not immunize us from the challenges and the vicissitudes of life, but rather help us to gracefully navigate through the challenges. Mm -hmm. And so that's my encouragement and appeal. And so as a, as a leader, the leader must and particularly in times of crisis, be an individual worthy of emulation mm. to have an awareness and a compassion for what is actually transpiring, to see things as they are, and to keep the welfare of all the people in heart and mind when rendering decisions. Mm. And that's why we see such a, a vast continuum currently in the political realm of those who are unaware of the gravity of what's occurring and others who are stepping up immediately you know, to act. Yeah. You know, and I see this, you know, uh, I look at indigenous leaders, for example, and I've been counseling with other chiefs and medicine people, and our response has been to continue to offer ceremonies to those who are willing and able to attend because this is a medicine way and it's a hospital, you know, so purification lodge is a hospital. You know, many of the plant, the sacred plant medicine ceremonies 
are very effective in doctoring. Obviously, with appropriate modifications for even more rigorous hygiene protocols to be observed. Because if we look back historically, when biological infectious agents were first introduced into indigenous populations who didn't have immunity for the purposes in that case of genocide, according to my family and my mentors, the individuals who engaged in their sacred practices were the ones who prevailed. Mm-hmm. Wow, there's there's a lot to digest in there. I want to, before we go too far, I want to circle back. I definitely want to put a bookmark in speaking about those medicines and sacred practices. But you mentioned something earlier that's been a really profound conversation point, which is a good death. I had a guest on here uh, just a few weeks back, a man by the name of Stephen Jenkinson, who is, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with him, but he's he's well accustomed to this work. He's done a lot of work with elderly and people who have been passing. And he he speaks very poetically about this this resistance that we have to death. Almost mm-hmm. like uh, like we use the word war, like we're trying to fight death. And even in this this dissemination of a disease, of a virus, there's the whole objective is to sustain life. There's no, there's no conversation about embracing the death. It's all about foregoing death. And so when you said part of this is about preparing for a good death, I just want to hear some more about what that means to you. (laughs) Beautiful. Thank you, Jenny. For me, a good death is being awake and aware at the moment when it is time for you to journey home and whereby the benefactors and the allies, as I call them, the one's guides in the unseen realm, greet you and meet you, you know, your spirit, you know, once it's no longer anchored to the physical form and help you make and guide you to the other dreams, other places that you are to be and travel, which is part of the dreamer's dream for for each individual. Mm. So for me, that is what characterizes a good death. So it's not necessarily a matter of longevity. It's simply a function of awareness at the moment that one is selected to pass from this world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that that, at least in my experience so far, that a lot of these ceremonies and and rituals are all in service to both of those things, the, the polarity of living a good life and also preparing for a good death so that we can live live our lives to the fullest and prepare for that that passage right because that death is just another rite of passage it's another ceremony that is uncomfortable <laughs> i guess that's the defining quality of a, of any good rite of passage is it's it's uncomfortable it's i don't know if you would look at, the, at it this way but it's almost like the cost of or the price of admission to another stage to another level of being is to endure and be tested by the rigors, whatever whatever those are, whatever that looks like. And so, uh, mm-hmm. I just found that really interesting when you that you mentioned the the good death because that's something that we're so we're so resistant to. Even myself, because I, I want I'm more I have more attention on living a good life right now, and I think it's 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 important for me personally to remember that I'm also preparing for death, even though I'm I'm 32 years old. I don't have intentions or desires to go anytime soon, mm-hmm. but that there's there's got to be that balance there. Otherwise, I may not be prepared in that time that I'm called home. I regard awakened warriorship as it's an individual who allows the awareness of his or her death to galvanize them to act with impeccability and integrity Mm. and compassion while they're alive. Mm -hmm. So it it can become a driving force of inspiration. And if we truly understand that we do not have a tomorrow at any time, it's really not our choice. Most people don't choose to die. They really desire to, you know, the life force is strong and they wish to live. And so we can use that as our impetus, as our drive of the awareness of our death to galvanize us to act, Mm -hmm. to fulfill our mission and our purpose for being here on classroom planet Earth. Mm -hmm. I say, I use that almost literally because for me, this is kind of like it's a university, Mm. it's a classroom. And tuition is costly. <laughs> and the tuition will ultimately cost you your life. Mm. Yeah. And that's the blessing. That's, that's the willingness to, to receive the lessons that are possible. I would say um, 
I've done a lot of hospice work in the past. And uh, I'm also, I've had the pleasure of ceremonially supporting women in the birthing process. And there's actually, there may be some discomfort in that right. However, there's far more ecstasy and joy and peace that's also possible. There, I've been present to witness an individual take their last breath. And I've also seen and had the, the, the privilege of seeing a new being take its first breath. And, and the woman who, the mother who was breathing during that whole journey to bring life to her body. And though there may be sweat and tears and challenges at times, there's also a deep underlying joy and ecstasy and sacredness to see that individual take that last breath with absolute peace upon their face as their spirit leaves their body and often gazing into the mystery. Mm. Yeah. So it's not always an ordeal. Yeah. Well, I I appreciate you. I appreciate you sharing that. I think that's, I think for, for those of us who are resistant to or afraid of discomfort, that there's an opportunity there to be in the practice. Cause it, I think it's a, it's a practice learning to be uncomfortable and embracing discomfort because of you, what you come to know about that as a rite of passage, as part of what allows you to serve at a higher capacity and live a more fulfilling life and also have a more complete death and fulfilling death experience. That's, it's an invitation to lean into those discomforts, whatever they may be. And so I want to circle back to where I put that bookmark in around the healing powers of sacred practice. You had mentioned that there's, uh, at least from the teachings that you heard, that people who always stay connected to their sacred practices and ceremonies were always protected from these pandemics, epidemics, you know, disease, famines, whatever it was that came rolling through. So, uh, just tell us a little bit more about that, especially keeping in mind that some people who are listening probably don't even know what you mean when you say a sacred practice or it's a little more context around what that might be to help people along. Okay. I did want to share one thing. I'm reminded of Tashunka Witko, his crazy horse, and he would say, Hoka, hey, it is a good day to die because I have gathered everything in this moment mm. to make the journey home. Mm. So. Yeah, I like that. All right. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> So there is a rich wealth of traditions available to individuals who wish to engage in heartfelt sacred practice. And for me, it's the path that calls the individual, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Perhaps in our youth, we may explore different traditions, but a time comes when the path will reveal itself to you. And then it's incumbent upon you to say yes. And, you know, obviously in the Red Road and the Native Path, we have many ways of of ceremony. And among them is the Purification Lodge, the Tipi Way, right, that employs the Native American Church that employs the Sacrament Grandfather Peyote. Certainly there are many other plant medicine ceremonies that are also available that can also be participated in, in in a humble and respectful way. But all of these, in terms of the Red Road, are are medicine ways. And as such, it's important that we are careful in terms of our participation and our respect, knowing that they're extraordinarily powerful. And we know, for example, so I also am a licensed EMT, besides the uh, practitioner of traditional indigenous medicine. And... There are scopes of practice within the allopathic paradigm. And so if I was to exceed my scope, say, begin practicing what nurses or physicians are qualified to do, then I can lose my license. And and actually, it's against the law. Well, the same reverence and respect is necessary to, to regard indigenous practices, which are equally rigorous with exacting protocols as well. And there are scopes of practice as well within the indigenous way of life. And I do want to stress that it's a way of life. It's not just merely a set of practices, but it requires training and devotion and apprenticeship. In my travels throughout the world, speaking with other 
ceremonial leaders and chiefs and medicine people, they say that it requires approximately 10 years of apprenticeship to truly be regarded as a traditional medicine person. And it's actually quite similar to the allopathic paradigm. To become a board-certified physician is anywhere from eight to 10 years or more of training, depending upon one's specialization. And so oftentimes there's this hunger that individuals have to participate in native ceremonies, and they often experience it. And then there's a misunderstanding that somehow they're qualified or, or ready and to share this medicine with others with potentially great harm mm. to not only the individuals who they think they're serving, but also to themselves and their families. So there's a, a gravity to this way of life that really requires humility, sincerity, as well as tremendous patience. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that there's something about this world in this time where there's an like a sense of urgency. And I don't know, maybe it is connected to just how, where, where we sit as a people, that there is almost a, a, a sense of desperation for turning the corner. You know, whether you're talking about it from a science perspective or a spiritual perspective or a political perspective, there's a similar conversation around urgency. And so I, I always appreciate whether it's you or other, other elder folks that I look up to, to who, who are able to bring in and call in that need for patience, for, for poise, and for being deliberate and intentional in a path versus accelerating to the destination, <laughs> accelerating to that point. Because anyone who hasn't served in that capacity wouldn't understand the, the risk that they're putting themselves and other people at. So it's, it's a really important reminder. And I think there's also, it's also important to, to, for us to speak a little bit about where someone can begin. Um, even in times of, of sequestering, where, we, where maybe we can't go and participate readily in ceremonies the way that we would like to, what are some simple ways that folks can still engage in a sacred personal, a personal sacred practice of connection? And, and, and I, I don't know what the word would be, connection. Let's, let's go with that. You know, in this, which was also prophesied, this time of the quickening, this acceleration, there's often a impulse to take shortcuts, right? We're looking for swift answers swift relief. And I believe that's really the driving force of the instant shamans, for example, right? Are those that are not willing to take their time and to truly embody the teachings and the medicine. The danger with shortcuts is that you don't have the larger picture, right? It's kind of like the, the story of the tortoise and the hare, mm -hmm. right? So, right, the tortoise is methodical and and took its time and was aware of its surroundings, right? And and with the indigenous people, right, the the tortoise, the terrapin, is one of the wisdom keepers, right, of of their of traditions, right? Because they're so methodical and they are patient in taking their time to absorb everything. You know? Whereas the hare swiftly runs and is not aware of the surroundings and may arrive at the finish line first, but ultimately has nothing to show mm. for that speed. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of the analogy. So starting with the foundation, what's fundamental is, is critical. And so in this time of, of insularity and sequestration, cultivating a meditation practice, being able to sit still, focusing on the breath, curtailing the inner dialogue. That's a really key piece because that also will enhance one's awareness of learning how to become riveted in the present moment, to pay attention to one's surroundings, awareness. It's one thing I really appreciate about you, Jetty, is your awareness and your attention to detail. Mm -hmm. And I believe that a lot of listeners on your podcast could, I I see you as a, a man definitely worthy of emulation in that way. So that for me is is the foundation to be able to sit still and quiet. Yeah, that, that's interesting. That was uh, going way back in the annals of my history, <laughs> back into my early 20s when 
I started to really explore and examine a spiritual path for myself outside of the tr- the only tradition that I witnessed growing up was Christianity and Catholicism. That's I was loosely raised in it and not very receiving of it. I, I resisted it a lot. So by the time I was in my early 20s, my I started to spend time around folks in college where it was a very liberal school and some of my friends were ex- experimenting with Buddhism and, and meditation. And so meditative practice was really what started it all for me. Learning to sit, mm-hmm. learning to be silent, recognizing how uncomfortable, speaking of discomfort, how uncomfortable it can be physically to sit, mentally to experience the chattering monkeys, you know, going off at a million miles per hour. But then also experiencing some of that euphoria on the other side of, of going through that, that passage of discomfort. Even just in a 20, 30, 45 minute meditation, I had some tremendous journeys and that was, that was really an awakening for me. So just to, to reinforce mm-hmm. and endorse what you're saying here for anyone who doesn't have what they would consider a spiritual sacred practice or something that creates greater connection. I think there's a lot of ways that it could look but some version mm-hmm. of a meditation, of a stillness practice even, it's tremendous because uh, like you said, this this time of quickening, I, I myself have even started to deliberately sit more often in this time because I, I've become accustomed to movement and action over the years. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it never stops having its, having its merit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even as you just mentioned, you know, in terms of the discomfort and then the euphoria goes back to what we shared, that meditation is a form of death, right? It's actually also another way to prepare how to die in a good way, right? So that we learn how to become still. What happens, our breathing slows, our heart rate slows, right? It brings us closer to that edge, mm. right? And so being able to quiet the mind and breathe and be present eventually, you know, and I encourage your listeners to begin slowly, right? So maybe sit for five minutes, you know, in terms of the instructions I give my students is that eventually they want to be able to sit for a half hour to an hour twice a day. So, but it's an incremental process. Begin with five minutes in the morning and the evening and then extend it maybe each week to another five minutes. So you're sitting for 10 and then 15 and it's actually you begin to relish the silence and you actually accrue internal silence, right? Mm. And so that's certainly the foundation of all sacred practices. And then from there, I firmly believe in prayer, right? To be able to articulate one's intent to the universe, right? To the powers that be um, by humbling oneself, petitioning the ancestors for assistance and guidance, right? So in Lakota, the word prayer means wochekia, which is to cry. So prayer is unfettered heart speak. We just open our hearts and allow that expression to the universe. And perhaps as we humble ourselves and we may weep in in the openness and the vulnerability of our humanity. Mm. And so this is a way that we can plant seeds of intention and ask for assistance from the unseen to help us in our life for ourselves and our loved ones. And so prayer is also, you know, for us, prayer is as important as food and water and sleep. And our spiritual practice is not a luxury. It's not separate from the matrix of our lives, but is in, intimately woven into it. Mm. Right? So when we go on the hill, when we uh, Sundance, for example, right, in the Lakota tradition or other traditions, right, we forego water and food and sleep. And what we have is prayer as our form of nourishment and expression both. And so weaving not only a meditation, but a prayer mm. practice into one's life is valuable because the spirits are with us all the time. They're constantly watching us and listening to us and waiting for us to ask for assistance. Otherwise, they will just laugh at our incessant folly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's it, man. I want to speak a little bit about prayer, my experience with prayer, because I'm really glad that you brought that up. My experience with prayer and my context for prayer until I started to sit with native elders and 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 be a part of some of these native ceremonies was a rehearsed and regurgitated words that were not my own. 
that were someone mm-hmm. else's that were supposed to be said and spoken at a specific time and in a specific way. And that was the only context for prayer that I had. So, and what I've come to learn and discover is there are definitely traditional ways of addressing certain elders and certain spirits and certain sacred ones. But beyond that, there's also just the, like you said, the self-expression, that authentic expression that we have, the, whether we're asking for guidance, petitioning for support, or even just expressing gratitude and humbling ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, there, it can be very, it can be a very mm-hmm. simple thing. And so uh, a lot of times I notice that there's a, a reconditioning that needs to happen around our, our beliefs about what prayer is and also how to do it. It was very difficult for me mm-hmm. in the beginning to to pray out loud, to hear my voice out loud and hear what I was saying and feel a little bit clumsy with it and not know what exactly I wanted to say. And, and even just being with that and saying, you know, oh, wow, creator in this prayer right now, I don't know exactly what to say. So I guess if you could just look into my heart and hear what my heart's saying right now, because I can't quite find the words to be in that discomfort of finding, again, that what I consider to be that authentic voice and allowing that voice to come through. If it's gratitude, uh, all the things I'm grateful for. That's mm-hmm. such an easy place to start. We have so many things to be grateful for, even if we just start with life and then eventually beginning to get more fam- familiar and adapting to asking for what we want and what we need to help us on our journey, to help us on our path. And then, you know, as you go, I think there's these more formal ways of, of prayer that honor certain traditions and activate certain energies, which I'm sure you could speak much more to than I could, but just so that people don't count themselves out. Because a lot of people will count themselves out because they're like, oh, well, I don't know the words or I don't know how to do this. It's, yes, you do. <laughs> you know how to say thank you. It's probably one of the first words you mm-hmm. learned. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, a lot of other traditions, the conditioning is that it's a recitation from somebody else's mind or heart. Whereas the beauty of indigenous medicine ways and practices is that it's a personal subjective expression of one's heart. And I'm reminded of, um, his name is Baba Krito Mutwa. He is a Sanusi, his highest level medicine practitioner, very renowned traditional healer and holy man in, uh, in Africa, in specifically South Africa. He was Zulu uh, through tradition in his nation. And he recently made his journey quite advanced in age, I think 98 years old. I had the pleasure of, of three audiences with him traveling to South Africa to spend time with this absolutely remarkable, inspiring man. He would say, gratitude is the wings of prayer. <laughs> he was also a poet and a very erudite scholar as well. And so, I also remember him and, and the gift of his wisdom and insight right now. So, yeah, I mean, by expressing our heartfelt thanks, our gratitude. It allows our prayers to take flight. As, as you rightly said, it's very simple to express thanks and, and to find one's actually own voice and one's own words is really an important part of, of prayer because it's also about being aware of the moment. So often a recitation has to do with the past rather than with what's currently happening. Mm. And so prayer for me, prayer is a living entity. Yeah, it's something that is dynamic and that evolves and changes. And you know, I may receive a call from someone who is suffering. And so I'm going to incorporate into my prayer in this moment a request from the ancestors to assist and, and doctor that person, for example. So again, it's not static. It's very much a living, dynamic evolution. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, wow. perhaps, for example, I'm sitting here and and I, it starts to rain. And so I will acknowledge the wakio, the thunder beings for the blessings of the rain in the moment, or maybe a hawk soars over the head, over our head. And so I'll acknowledge the winged one in that moment who's gracing us with, you know, with the presence, you know. And so again, prayer becomes very much connected to the moment that we're in. And we do, we discover our voice toward the sacred. Mm. Yeah, and I also find uh, the connection. The the word I keep coming back to with with especially when it comes to prayer is connection. It takes me out of my outside of myself. Just the the power of something so simple is prayer praying out loud and letting your words be mm-hmm. heard and and even hearing what you will say when sparked into the moment of reflection of acknowledgement and because if we're not acknowledging the rain that's falling outside and where that comes from or if we're not acknowledging the hawk that's flying overhead 
then I think the majority of the time we're, we're spending, we're camping out upstairs in our head and our, in our own brains. And there's not much connection that's happening there except for these like really, you know, small synaptic connections that are going back and forth from one nerve cell to another. So the, the greater connection is, is happening around us at all times. And, um, so I, I really hear that in what you're sharing there. I thank you for that. Well, that's the awareness of us being truly present and tracking what's happening. Yeah. We tend to be actually rather self-absorbed, mm-hmm. uh, very you know, within ourselves rather than paying attention to the world around us. And we look at an infant, for example, who's not socialized or uh, even been conditioned with language yet, and they're very much out aware, just like an animal, mm-hmm. right? completely uh, in the present moment, paying attention to everything that is occurring around them. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm also reminded in what you said about right there about being self, self-oriented and self-referenced. That's, that's also the inclination of a child too, is to, to ask for what they need and to, to only having the capacity of thinking about oneself and one's, one's own survival and, and well-being. Perhaps that's our setup for the next conversation we have. <laughs> it's really the Maybe. journey of moving past this, this childhood mentality into that of an adult, that of the awakened warrior, as you spoke of, and the leaders mm-hmm. that, we, that we need in this time. So, well, yeah. let, you have one more thing to say about that? <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, I think one of a very important practice, particularly now, you know, we have a gift of this air being pure, and it hasn't been this clean in almost two decades. And I think it's vital as actually a response to and a shape-shifting of the paradigm of war and aggression for us to go outside and to put our hands on the earth, place our bare feet on the earth, and to reconnect with the mother, to truly love, respect, and adore her, to breathe in this precious air, to drink pure water with awareness I think it's really important, particularly in this time where many people are being sequestered or sheltered in place, just to be able to go outside, even with appropriate physical distancing, or better yet, time spent in solitude to cultivate an intimate relationship with the natural world. And that, for me, is also a part of the sacred practice of Indigenous people, is not to forget that fundamental connection to our literal mother. Beautiful, Chief. Well, you you answered the last question I was going to ask you is what words of encouragement or, <laughs> or appeal do you have for our audience? But I think that's a beautiful place to leave it. I, I thank you again for your your tremendous work, your tremendous wisdom. And also, I, I've, I've found a source of patience and confidence in the way in speaking with you. I haven't said this to you directly yet, but even in our conversations offline, because I... You know, very transparently, I, I've shared with you some of my own uncertainties about how to navigate in this time. And I experience you as a man who's just so committed and connected to his way. It's something that I admire and look up to. So I, I just want to thank you for being that kind of man, for being that kind of leader, that kind of awakened warrior in the world. Because in my experience, those men have been hard to come by. So thank you for everything that you share and everything you bring to this world and to this space. It is my genuine pleasure to share with you and your listeners and I have utmost respect for you and your journey and who you are and and your mission and purpose to to bring this much needed message to men of your age and actually to all of us. So I really relish and cherish our alliance and look forward to further conversations uh, down the road, Mm. as well as for your participation in ceremonies and to encourage your listeners to reach out. And as I said, my ceremonies are continuing. Everyone is open. It's an open heart, open altar. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. And and one more time, just for folks who may have not listened to the other episode, where can they go to connect with you and, and learn more about what you're offering? Yes, please. So um, my website in this time will probably be updated, <laughs> slightly antiquated. <laughs> So the web address is www.ancestralvoice.org. I also have a Facebook page that is Ancestral Voice. My email is philip, P-H-I-L-L-I-P, at ancestralvoice.org. And your listeners are certainly welcome to call me. My phone number is 415-310-0981. So all of these are 
viable avenues to connect with me. If they require any service, support, and prayer, these vehicles are always available for them to connect with me. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Chief. And lastly, before we sign off, just want to close the loop by acknowledging and honoring and recognizing your wife, Cecilia, who has passed. I really felt her presence in this conversation today. And so uh, thank you for acknowledging that and today being her her birthday. Uh, so just celebrating her life and celebrating her journey in the great beyond. Thank you very much. Yeah, she watches my back and is very palpable in conversations of sacred matters as well as in ceremonies mm-hmm. that uh, that I conduct. So thank you for your acknowledgement of her as well. Beautiful. Well, until next time, Chief, you stay well and take care of yourself out there. Yeah. Prayers for you and your wife and your children as well, for, uh, as well as all the listeners and their family and friends for health and safety in this time of great opportunity and auspicious challenge. Mm. Aho. I always enjoy an opportunity to drop in with Chief and I'm so grateful that we get to just hit record and capture these messages and transmissions for all of you out there, men, women, wherever you are, whoever you are, we're grateful for you tuning in and thank you for being a part of the Rising Man movement. If you are a man and if you're looking to drop in to the Rising Man community, take that next step then head over to risingman.org, go over to the Fire Circles tab and check out what we're doing with our virtual men's circles. Get yourself involved. Also, if you're interested in men's initiation, click the initiations tab and check out what we're doing with Compass. It's a really powerful way to clarify your purpose and to ignite that spark behind what you want to create in this world. So go check that out today, as well as everything else related to the Rising Man over at risingman.org. Wherever you're listening to us, please subscribe and follow us on the podcast app that you use. Hit that subscribe button, follow button, like button, wherever it is, if you haven't already. And if it's been a while since you've left a review or if you have never done that, please do so. Those reviews, those messages and comments go a long way. So take two minutes to drop a comment and a review. Tell us what you think about the Rising Man podcast. Check us out on Instagram at Rising Man Movement and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash the Rising Man Movement for all of our new video content that we've been putting out this year. Big shout outs to my Rising Man power team. You know I couldn't do it without these fellas. I tell you each and every week, Sean Offenbach, Rowan Tyne, Ryan Wilcox, Julian Subic, and Mark Rose. Grateful for everything, the contributions you guys have been making for the past almost two years. Two years, almost two years you guys have been working with me. So thank you guys for everything you're doing. Until next time, rise up and claim your destiny.